morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Uh, you just got me today. Um, Karen was going to come in, but she's sick. And so we're talking uh, um, with Donald Cohen, who's a real expert on privatization and has got a really interesting book out called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Um, he's the head of a institute that focuses just on this kind of issue. And we've talked about um, uh, privatization several times over the last 10 years. Um, but in any case, Donald Cohen is the founder and, co- and executive director of Public Interest, a policy center on privatization and responsible contracting. Um, and uh, has written extensively about it, has a series of books, a series of articles. My first contact um, with the issue of privatization was back in the early days of the Internet. And in the early days of the Internet, uh, we were able to set up a little um, e-magazine. And because there was no one else around, we got hundreds of thousands of views, even though the Internet had just started. In other words, these large things like AOL had just all combined so we could go cross-platform. And um, anyway, we had a little magazine. Some poets on AOL contacted us and complained about censorship on AOL. And so we got involved in the issue. And what we realized, and we, we did fight it. We talked to the, we got the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation involved. And we tried to embarrass AOL into stopping some of their over-the-top censorship of poets. But... What we quickly realized was that, uh, and the reason we had no legal uh, standing was that AOL was a private company, and therefore it was not subject to the rules if it had been a government uh, uh, institution. And in fact, when we looked around the Internet at that stage, everything was private. Everything was uh, owned by somebody. It's like trying to to, if you were to go in Sedona and try to uh, um, gather signatures for your election, you could go to Uptown Sedona, which is filled with tourists and almost no local citizens. The only other places you can go are the big parking lots of the grocery stores and other merchants, and they regulate those. Those are all private property. So none of them, for example, will let us do uh, uh, register people. So that was my uh, first uh, experience, Donald Cohen, with privatization, was on the Internet and realizing that our private spaces had declined and that there wasn't an originally almost anywhere to go. Um, so tell us a little bit about you spent, I think, a good portion of your life working on the issue of privatization. You're one of the most knowledgeable people, I think, in the country on the issue. Tell us a little bit about how do we get in a situation where, as you say in your book, basically everything is getting privatized? Well, um, well, thanks for having me, Steve. Um, 
So, you know, let me, let me reflect on a couple of examples that you gave. So the Internet, I mean, it was you know, back in the AOL days or in the 90s, I'm not sure when that was, you know, everybody, uh, you know, I, it's hard to remember, but I don't think everyone needed the Internet and the ability to communicate, you know, through the World Wide Web or what have you, like we do today. It's pretty clear that, you know, that the Internet is clearly part of our basic infrastructure. Everybody needs access. Um, for education, for commerce, for communications with, with each other, for, you know, literally, it, it, it's, it's fundamental to being able to function in society. So what was clearly just a, you know, never mind that it was, you know, invented with public resources. Exactly. Back, you know, but setting that aside, that it was a public investment that came up with the ideas and came up with the technology, that we, you know, we now realize this really is an essential public thing. We need to have it. Now, there's, you know, I'm, we all use the Internet. We probably are all buying it from Spectrum or Comcast or whoever at this point. But what's important about that, not, not so much as who's giving us the service, although you know, that could be public as well, is that whether we control it publicly, whether we regulate it, whether we, can, whether we make sure that everyone's got access, that everyone can afford it, that, you know, that, that there is no censorship, that, you know, that we all have equal access. So, you know, the reason I, I, I raise that is because when I think of the, when we describe the word privatization, we say, well, it's, you know, the Internet wasn't privatized, per se, but it is private, um, but, the, you know, in, in great, to great extent. We, I define privatization as private control and power over public goods, over the things that we all need. If we all need to, so we all need to communicate, we all need, you know, the Internet is you know, as part of our infrastructure is as basic as the interstate uh, highway system at this point in America. We need to have control over it. We need to regulate it. Now, there are cities across the country that are saying we also want to run it, you know, creating municipal broadband. But but it can be either way. Important thing, you know, important, and we support municipal broadband, but the important thing is that we have control over it so that we guarantee that access and we guarantee that quality and all that. Um I mean, the other thing you mentioned uh, it, about private public spaces, you know, you have to go to the, you know, to the shopping mall to get signatures to, you know, on a petition. We really have, you know, few public spaces now, if you think about it. There are parks there are where we all interact with one another, and we, we do so freely. Uh, there are parks, there's libraries, um, there's the streets. But many of the other spaces that we, op you know, we operate in are really controlled by somebody, you know, who private interests and you know at some level it, I guess I suppose it's fine for us to be able to go into a store and that's their store and all that but there's places where we're not but we're increasingly not interacting together on public places um, that, that, that put us in contact with people that we don't necessarily know that we don't necessarily agree with that we don't necessarily look like and that kind of weakens the fabric of democracy and it weakens our sense that we're kind of We've got a joint project here, and that's society and democracy. And that opens the door for greater privatization. Because if we're just individuals, you know, going to the shopping mall as opposed to citizens going to the park and the library, um, it's a little simple, simplistic explanation, then it's pretty easy to privatize something when we're just consumers. We just say, well, we might as well get it from a private company rather than the government. I thought you made a, a good point in your book about 
the whole process of privatization is caught up in the transformation of the American people from being citizens of a country to being taxpayers in a country. And we still get those letters to the editor, I'm a taxpayer, blah, blah, blah. Nobody ever says, I'm a citizen, you know. And I think what I thought you, you had a good point, and maybe you can elaborate on a little bit. First, folks, the, the process of, of privatization, as, as, as a, a Donald Cohen can tell you, goes way back. It's been in the works for years. And uh, there's a particular group of people, of course, who've been behind it, who've been pushing it, who think it's a solution to things. And I think in his book, he gives a good example of how far back this goes. So if you wonder how he got in the situation, I think I think to some extent his book is really good on this. But what happens when you turn citizens into consumers? How does that affect uh, how government and, and the private sector behave? Well, um, the private sector behaves the same all the time. So let me let me bookmark that and set that aside. So you know they sell things. And that's, yes. Um, Public sector is so you know if you're a citizen, let's take it, you know, participate in society. You should have you have rights, you have, but you also have responsibilities and obligations, um, and you also have an understanding that we are all pretty much interdependent. We kind of all need each other, you know, not just as a set of values, but to sort of make it all work. So if you're a consumer of education. Um, of public education, say, if, you, if we privatize public education, then you take your voucher or you, you know, or your dollars from the, and you go and you buy education for your child. That's because, you know, and that's okay. You care about your kids. It's your first priority. I have, you know, I have children. Um, but if you're a citizen, you pay for that education. We all pay for this stuff. But you also recognize that we need everyone to be educated. And it isn't just a question of it. It's not just a humanitarian thing, you know, um, gesture that, we, you know, I'm educated. We should have somebody else educated. So we all do better when we're all educated. So our economy is stronger. We're more productive. We, there's a small chance that we can talk to one another across party lines, another line, better chance if we have a, you know, if we, if we have more knowledge and we have more interaction. So that's the thing. It's that it's, when you're a citizen, it, it, it is, you know, first off, we pay for things together through our taxes we use things together whether we you know um because they're public things and they're available to all and you know and as i mentioned we recognize that we are in fact interdependent we actually do actually need each other so it's about you know it's not just about me getting what i need it's about everybody getting what they need at, at its basic and i i think that you know the pandemic kind of punctuates this in such a clear way it's I very clear right. now that the health of all of us depends on the health of each of us, period. I think in the conflict within the Trump administration about how to deal with COVID, you really saw the fight bet uh, between the, the privatization or the privatizing view and the public interest view. And you saw some of the, the memes uh, about government can't do anything right it should be left to the private sector, uh, public-private uh, partnerships, they call them, are the only way to go. And you saw a lot of that play out in an extremely negative way. Um, 
it's been coming for a long time. What what can we do about because people? Well, let me let me let me let me let me mention a couple things about the coming for a long time. Um, so there's a few different, you know, what you know, what are the forces behind, or what you know, who who advocates for privatization? So I think it's worth peeling apart a little bit the different, you know, where it's coming from in a couple of different places. One is, you know, there's a there is a world view. You know, true believers um, that really believe that the market is the better instrument to get what we need. It's the fairest and most productive, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, and, and, and at the same time that we are all individuals responsible for our own futures, period. That's, you know, that's a worldview by, you know, conservative economists and thinkers and, uh, and, and others. They believe that. Um, um, so that's one place. And that's, you know, in, 19, in the 1950s, Milton Friedman, you know, well-known econ- conservative economist, you know, first came up with the, the idea of school vouchers, right? That we should just get our, che- you know, our money from, you know, our, our voucher, and then we should go shop around for the best schools for our kids. And that that worldview is still very much alive. Then there's a second group of folks, you know, group, and that is corporations who want uh, to get a hand, you know, to get their, you know, they're looking for to sell things. And they see massive amount of money being, you know, being spent each year, trillions of money, you know, dollars spent each year by governments, from school boards to, you know, to the federal government. And they see that as a market opportunity. Um, you know, there's three quarters of a trillion dollars every year spent in public education, a hundred billion in pr- prisons. I mean, you can kind of go down the list. And there are big corporations that are, you know, that, that, that are ready, willing, and able to provide those services. So they, you know, they do that. They lobby. They, you know, they try to sell their wares, and they wrap it in what what you were talking about as well: cheaper, better, faster. The market's better. Business is better than you know. Government, government's always inefficient. Government can't do anything right. When, in, but you know, the problem with all that is that it's just wrong. I mean, in fact, the, the virus. You know, talking about the Trump's early, earliest um, response to the, to the to the pandemic was let the market take care of it, and then you had states. You know, competing against states to buy PPE and testing equipment, it was a disaster. Um, but then, a fine, ultimately, you know, Operation Warp Speed came about, and there was a massive amount of government involvement and coordination in trying to get, you know, both testing equipment and ultimately vaccines to the people. There's a lot of government in all this. There had to be, didn't there? I mean, there's still people arguing that there shouldn't be any mandates about masks or anything else. It should be left up to the individual uh, business owners about what rules they have. Um, and there's still, uh, on, particularly on the extreme line, still a lot of people who believe it, that, you know, the, the uh, local grocery store should set whatever rules it thinks is right for its consumers. Um, well, I don't think those grocery stores have infectious disease specialists on their staff. Scientists that can help us figure out what the best way to, you know, prevent the, the transmission of the disease. But it's kind of the logical outcome of the view that government can't do anything. The private sector does everything right. Uh, that any attempt to do something collectively uh, as citizens is somehow an imposition on the rights of a consumer to, you know, they would argue like, well, this, this, this drugstore doesn't have any, any rules, no mask or something, no immunization. And that's the choice of the consumer whether to go to that store or not. And that would solve everything. 
definitely, clearly at this point, many, many people who believe that for, for whatever reason. But the facts count, contradict that. That, you know, like, like I already said, you know, the, the, you know COVID uh, tra- is, can be transmitted by somebody with COVID, with, you know, without COVID. If you are not wearing a mask, if you are not, you know, if you're not vaccinated at this point, you have the you, you can possibly infect someone else who may get sick and who could die. That's where, you know, that's the citizenship. You have a risk. That, that's not citizenship. But the citizen, the idea that we're in it together is you have a responsibility to not do harm to your to, to the person, you know, that you interact with. Um, and that's, um, you know, if you're not masked and you're not vaccinated, then, you know, there's a chance that you, that people will get sick and possibly even die. So we actually, we do have responsibilities to each other. That's what, that's what society's about. That's what democracy's about. It's not just me. It's it's us. We do need to pay our tax. I mean, it's sort of all obvious stuff. But and, and I'll take it back to the larger idea. Health, public health, is a public good. We need we, we the only way to ensure that everybody you know has access to you know good to health care and that we are keeping everyone safe and healthy is through collective action. Is through government involvement. Now. That's not to say that there are private companies that play a role. Uh, you know, I went to CVS to get a to get a COVID test. It's a private company. That's fine. But the only way that to make sure that that was free and accessible and easy for me to get was through government rules and government spending. So I think when COVID brought out, as maybe the majority believe in, sort of protecting other people, but there's a strong minority that that doesn't, that sees that as an imposition on their liberty, the fact that they're forced to wear a mask, mainly to protect other people, not themselves. They, that galls them. Uh, we certainly have that kind of attitude here in, in Arizona quite a bit. I don't think it's the majority of people, but it's a very strong minority. So when COVID hit, we didn't solve it in a simple, straightforward way. Instead, we got into this complicated political battle about public health issues that should have been just sort of uh, done well, rationally. Well, it just it gets, you know, to sort of gets to clear to the point of a consumer consumption is an individual act. It's all about what you want to go by and all that. And it doesn't involve anybody else. And I want to get what I want to get, but, you know, understandable, but that's, you know, but the difference of course, between that and being a citizen is that it's a different ethic, it's a different belief system or values or value system, better said. Um, that you know, we sort of got to do our part. So I, I think that the far right would say, "Do your part." And then when it comes to military stuff, but they don't see it in in keeping civil society strong and safe. And we can look around the world and see what happens when civil society fails or or is unable to function in a... Uh, we see countries moving toward dictatorship. Um, maybe you should give us an example. And I, I, we were talking before the show, we were talking about... Let's talk about exactly how the privatization works sometimes. And the one that you mentioned... Uh, I like the one in uh, Indiana, which is very complicated about a toll roll that uh, Pence was involved in. But you said the Chicago parking meter issue. Tell us about that as an example of what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's a good example. So, um, so first, you know, when 
we talk about privatization in terms of government contracting for something or entering a long-term lease, or you know, there's always a there's always a contract of some kind. So that's important. So this is Chicago parking meters kind of gives an illustration of the challenges there. So in 2009, um, you know, remember that was you know kind of the worst of the Great Recession. You know, cities were bleeding red ink. Um, really, de- you know, really tough times for everybody. So uh, what happened? Um, on a, it was on a Friday that uh, Mayor Daley at the time uh, announced a proposal from a consortium of private interests, Morgan Stanley, um, a, a, a sovereign wealth fund or investment from, fund from one of the Middle Eastern countries, and a national parking company. That consortium, private consortium, said they would give the city $1.1 billion up front in exchange for control of the city's uh, 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. Vote on Tuesday. They you know, they were desperate. They needed the cash. They saw this as a way out, whether it was right or wrong. Um, they did the deal. So what became true, so there's a 75-year lease, basically. Um, it's written in a contract. There's, you know, there's fine print. There's lots of details. We've, we, we've looked at it. Um, Two things became true after the after the fact because remember there was no time to evaluate this, um, for, you know, which of course was a problem, but, but that's what happened. Two things became true. One uh, more important than the other, in my view, uh, turns out that just to, on the analysis, I mean, it's an incredibly stupid way to to raise money to borrow money on your future parking meter revenues for seventy five years. I mean, we all borrow money on our future income when we when we buy a house. So you're borrowing money on your future revenue, you know, parking meter revenue for 75 years. We don't know if we're dri- we'll be driving in 75 years. So, but even if that was the only thing they could do, they sold a billion dollars too cheap. They got taken. Um, you know, Wall Street came in. They were desperate. We have this cash. But, you know, here, take it. Um, but that's not the most important. The, the most important thing, which I get, you know, gets to this, this, this larger issue, is that you know, now or, or for the remaining 60-some-odd years of the contract, that if the city wants to do a set of things that are in you know, normal things cities do, expand their transit system, you know, take away parking, which could include taking away parking spots for a dedicated bus line, bus rapid transit, or, or for bike lanes, or eliminate spots on an entire street or neighborhood because they want to turn it into a street mall and, and change their transportation patterns. Um, so if they want to do any of those things, including just a weekend street fair, you know, they want to eliminate spots, they have to buy the spots back. So you're taking, you're eliminating spots permanently, you're buying the spots back at the future value of the spots. What that means is the city, the democratically elected city council and mayor are constrained in, in many things that they're responsible for. Land use, transportation, housing, um, climate, environmental issues, they are constrained because they may not have the money to buy those spots back. The city has obligated itself to keep the private companies whole. Now, they also, the companies also made their money back in 15 years, you know, and they, they, it was projected that they would make their money back in 15 years, and the rest would be gravy. I mean, they have to manage the system. The rest would be gravy. So on top of all that, you know, the folks that live in Chicago are spending more money to park, and most of that money is going out, is leaving the city. Now, what I'll say is, those features, you know, those, 
that those features and those contracts aren't they're different for different services, but it's common. Embedded in contracts are the interests of the private company. It's under, and that's what a contract does. And those interests may contradict with ours. Private prison, you know, Arizona has private prisons. In we do. Arizona's private prison contracts with the state and the companies, there are bed guarantees. Keep the beds filled um, at 100% or pay the state anyway. So those companies want to make sure there's heads and beds. I think it, we've talked about that on other shows, folks, in the past. And basically the um, the state guarantees the private the contractors who own the prison that there'll be a certain number of people there in the prison. If there are not enough people incarcerated, um, then they have to pay uh, the, the company extra money. And uh, it's been a big issue in Arizona in in the past because it motivates you know putting people in jail so that uh, so that you don't have to pay for for zero. And I but, and I don't blame the private companies at all. You know they're, they're they they do one thing. They want to make money. They want to sell things. They want to have you know they sell beds. They sell heads and beds is what the private prison company. It's not our problem, and it gets in the way of our ability and our will. You know to to change, to be, you know, to, to have a different set of policies, to, you know, to say we want to reduce prison populations, we don't want to expand prison populations, to transfer that money into mental health programs or, or, uh, or you know, adult education or what have you, it ties our hands. It's an assault on democracy. I don't think that's what people generally realize is the extent to... Look, if you're unwilling to pay the taxes to have public prisons, then you sign these contracts and they tie your hands in various ways and limit your possibilities. Um, we have draconian laws here in um, Arizona about taking somebody's property. So if somebody has an Airbnb and the neighbors don't want it and the city were to go in and buy it, which is pretty much impossible. For other reasons, they would have to pay for the losses and in income that the people would have who own the Airbnb. So there's a, there's dozens of these laws in Arizona um, where we had a extremely conservative legislature for several decades. And um, that's the kind of example of them. Um, in the parking meter situation, basically Chicago sold a much larger stream of income in order to get some money immediately because they because they didn't have money because of the crash. And it seems to me that that's not the only case of private companies, particularly big investment uh, outfits, come, showing up when, when there's a crash in, uh, in revenues for cities and towns and the states and coming up with these solutions to them. No, it, it's it's common. I mean, um, water systems. You know, there are water systems that are in you know that are, with lots of deferred maintenance and the, the revenue base isn't there. This happened in in Pennsylvania, Coatesville is one example that comes to mind. Coatesville, Pennsylvania happened to mind. There, when government does, when their government agencies don't have enough money to do things, and you know, there are limits. Um, but uh, private companies will come in and will say, "We'll take this off your hands." We can do it cheaper. We'll pay for it. We'll upgrade it. We'll we'll do all you know. We'll do all that. So it's you know it. You know, there's a quote um, from some investors. You know that something 
like this. Desperate governments are our best customer, right? Yeah. You're a mayor, and you have to fix. You know, you, you got to build a new bridge, and you, you know, you got to go to the voters. You don't, you don't have the cash to do it. And a private company says, "We'll take it, uh, you know, off your hands." It happens all the time. We're particularly concerned now. Um, you know, not particularly, but we're concerned now that the infrastructure bill that got passed is a good thing. We need, the, we need the money that got passed and President Biden signed. But there are lots of private companies now that are looking for opportunities because there's not enough money. It's, you know, that would have been literally impossible because the, the needs are so great. They're, they're, private companies are, are positioning themselves, private investors are saying, you know, we need to rebuild, you know, lots and lots of the schools in our country. We can take that, we can do that for you. We'll take some of the public money, we'll take some of the private money, but we'll, so we'll build you the school, but we want control over the school. Um, we want to manage the school. And that's already happened once, and we see uh, if there's interest in doing that in other places. So it's pretty much, um, you know, that, that's the MO. And, and um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a need. You know, you're running, running in government's heart, right? You're, if you're the city of Sedona or you're the city of New York or the state of Arizona, the state of New York, it's hard. And someone says, I'll do it cheaper, I'll do it better, and I'll do it without it. You know, I'll take a headache off your, you know, off your desk. You know, you say, okay, I guess so. But what that ignores, just to sort of close the loop here, it ignores two really fundamental things. One is that there's really only one place to get money pay for the things that we all need, and that's us. It's the only place. So if a toll road, you know, if for, private, for the parking meter, it's pretty obvious. The, toll, the parking meter rates went way up. Okay, we're going to pay. For a, to, for a road, if a private company's going to come in and say, we'll build a road, um, and you won't have to pay for it, the tolls on that road will go way up. And that's what happened in Indiana. It happened, in, it happened outside of D.C. and Virginia. It's happened all over the place just go up because in fact things have to be paid for and there's only one place to get that money and that's us taxes tolls and fees um the other thing that's also really true here is that you know for those that think you're just offloading a headache is that man monitoring and managing a contract um, is actually pretty hard work and you need to, you know both people with skill and enough people to do the work you know and it's sort of common sense you, you know we all contract with house, you know, clean our yard, whatever it is, and we just know that if you don't watch, bad things happen. It's not all corruption, it's not all greed, it's just, you know, someone messes up. It, you know, it can be. So what often, what doesn't happen, if, you know, because contracts, you know, lots of governments contract for things. It's not all bad. It's just, you know, for little things here and there. We've been doing it for a hundred years. But when contract, when, when something's outsourced and privatized, what a, what a, the government agency ought to do is increase the number of staff who work for the, the agency to monitor and keep track of that contract, and they don't do that. And that's a problem. It's just poor management. So that's when things go bad. That's when things problems happen. Yeah, I, I see that. And I also see when listening to you that the background is this anti-government, anti-tax thing, so that the government in Indiana could improve the roads in Indiana, but then it would have to raise taxes, and it's afraid to do that. Or if they have a toll road, they're afraid to raise the toll themselves. I mean, politically, they're afraid to just say, "Look, we have to raise the toll to fix the road." So then they sell the uh, they sell the road, and then the the 
the tolls get raised anyway. So what they don't understand is that what the what the elected officials, the policymakers don't understand is they get blamed anyway. <laughs> yeah, and and the, the truth is that the citizens are gonna are are gonna be paying for it one way or another. Now it's true that if you don't use the road. Um, in that example, uh, that's a different situation, but it's a, uh, it's a situation where, you, you know, you, you're going to pay for it one way or another. But if you have this strong hatred of taxes, the belief that government can't do anything, then that, even if sometimes there should be privatization, that eliminate, eliminates the option of government keeping in and doing anything whenever there's a crisis or a problem or a complexity. And as you said, I think it's a really good point. A lot of these contracts are extremely complicated. They're not something that, you know, that you can just sit down and take a quick look at and decide that it's a good idea. And I think some of the fine prints that governments have signed off on with with, with private companies has been um, – not so much in the interest of the of the people paying the taxes and living in the in the state or or country. That's right. Well, and it's hard to do contracting. You know, you you, know, you have to anticipate everything that can go wrong or every every change that you might make. I mean, that's why there's so much contract litigation in the country. People, you know, the terms aren't clear enough. You haven't anticipated something correctly. It's actually pretty hard work. Um, but you know, going back to the roads. I mean, listen, we have to pay for things. When I say there's only one place to get money, it's us. You're right. We, you know, things cost money. Things that we value cost money. If, if you want to have every, if everybody should have health care, then it costs money. There's no free lunch anywhere. So, and I, you know, and I'm not necessarily against toll roads. I mean, I don't have a particular opinion about that. But it's what's important to understand about that is that it's in all of our interest for there to be highways for trucks to get on to get things to market or for people to get to work. People to go to school, mobility, which is really the you know what, what roads are about, and being able to move around. We all need to do our part because we all benefit. Right? You know, I just kind of keep coming back to that. It's about mobility. It's about our ability to get places and get everybody's ability to get places. Um, and so, how should we pay for them? You know, maybe it's a mix of tolls and taxes and all that. But um, it, you know, it, it's all, but it's important to understand what the purpose is. I mean, I will, I will go to transit just because it pops, you know, comes to mind. Um, there are uh, cities now that are making transit-free buses. Um, I think probably more than rail, but uh, I think about mostly buses, maybe some light rail as well. Because they realize that people just need to move around. You can pay through taxes just as easily as you can pay for, for a fare. And it will make it easy. You know, one, it will incentivize us perhaps to get out of our cars and to use transit. It will make it more affordable for people who need to get to work. Um, you won't have to spend the money on fare recovery because that you know just getting the fares cost money to to do with that. Uh, you can spend that money on expanding expanding the system. You don't pay to you know to to use the road to drive to the grocery store. Why should you pay to get on the bus to you know to go downtown? So you know there, there's a whole sort of push to, to say there are some things that, um, that 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 should be not just you know not just paid as a commodity where we pay as a consumer. But we can move some things back into the into the uh, into paying as taxes because it sort of makes more sense. 
Yeah, and collecting the money is um, on buses and all of that is is time consuming, and there's a whole process of collecting the money and then just getting the money to an office. It's it's very expensive. You save a lot of money by just paying for for taxes to start with. Um, it's just more efficient. But I think that's a hard sell. Um, well, it is because you know this is not an accident. You know, as you mentioned, it's been a long time. There've been forces, and both you know, in, in politics and you know, and in private sector that have been attacking government for 40, 40 plus years. That's had a real impact. Um, you know, in our belief system and what we understand and what we think our responsibilities are, um, and so you know the the. The, as we mentioned, I think before the call, is they played the long game. Those that wanted to, you know, privatize America, that wanted to reduce taxes and all that, they played the long game. So the question is for uh, those of us that have a different set of values and beliefs, you know, what's our long game? To rebuild commitment to the idea that there's things that we need to do together to make government institutions, uh, you know, uh, you know. Um, good and high quality and are reformed all the time because, you know, they're complicated institutions, um, you know, to make sure that we get control over the things that matter, to make sure that we got everybody health care and sort of these basic things. We have to play the long game as well. Yeah, and you have to point out things that I guess have just sort of slipped out of people's consciousness, which is, uh, if you go back to the COVID example, is that uh, taking care of your neighbor's health or encouraging your neighbor to do healthy things or the government's encouraging it helps you. Um, that it, it's got to be a, it's got to be a kind of collective, uh, decision. And with the antivirus, anti, uh, any, um, vaccination people going, I should say, um, it, it's hard for us to reach herd humanity if, if people are just not going to take the, um, immunization, but people say, well, I don't need it because I'm a healthy person or I don't need it because blah, blah. It's, it's this, I guess it's the conflict between what you think is personally in your interest and what you think is generally in your interest, even though the general, generally a good general decision, say about public health, will end up helping you and your family as well as everyone else. It's not simple. I mean, we all just live our lives, right? So it's, you know, it's hard to see the whole picture all the time. That's when, you know, that's why we need sort of a sea change and, you know, over it'll take time in how we define democracy and how we define ourselves as citizens. That's, that's kind of an important thing. The, the other point I wanted to make is um, there is government, public and private, in virtually everything. I mean, uh, so there's government... I, I, I like to use a phrase, government is both invisible to us and ubiquitous, government action. So, for example, you know, you turn on the water and the water comes out of the tap. It's kind of a miracle, I believe. Um, it's a public service. Now, it might be, even if it's offered privately, it's regulated and all that. It's, um, the paint on your wall used to have lead in it and be poisonous. You know, it, it, it doesn't anymore. That was government action that made that. That you're, if you have a smartphone, the touchscreen came from government investment in science. Um, so it literally, there's nothing you can look at just around your room, around your, you know, your neighborhood that doesn't have public involvement in it. Our food is healthier and safer because uh, of, food, of, 
why don't we see any of the positive things government does? I see really sort of rabid anti-government stuff, and and the people will be collecting Social Security, or they won't have. They don't even have pensions, and yet people don't see it. Uh, That's why I say it's sort of invisible to us. Like you look at the air, you don't say, "Oh, the government cleaned that air." You don't see it. We have a task, and that is to make the public more visible. I call it we call the surface the state. Phrase I came up with in the book. Now it's not all good, it's not all bad, but we need to make sure we see the public purpose around us all the time. It's kind of a key, a key, you know, task we need to do all the time. You know, it's so much. The other thing, <laughs> there's very few public services or things that we, you know, that we truly get joy out of, right? Like we would get out of buying a new suit or a new phone or a new, you know, something. We like feel good about it. I think it's libraries and parks. Those are the things we go into or we connect with. They say, well, this is, I feel joy. Um, when you think about the roads, well, you don't think about, oh, how great that the government builds roads. You think about potholes and you think about traffic, right? right? Those are what you think about. Again, like I said, our role is to say, no, this is making us able to move around to make society work. And, yeah, if there's potholes, we need to make sure that we fix them because they're ours. So as an individual... Uh, what can you do to get a better balance of privatizations? Because it looks to me like it's been running full steam with nobody pushing back on it, nobody asking questions. Uh, in some of the examples you give, nobody in government really checks to see if the projections of revenue, say, are correct or not. And so they're under, so they under project and then they can uh, pay less for a, for say a toll road. What can individuals do to, to, to bring, um, to bring privatization more into balance with what makes sense? Well, I should, I should say, um, there are lots of places and cases where that is, is happening. It's just, you know, um, off the top of my head, you know, Miami wanted to private, my, uh, Miami Dade County wanted to privatize a, a brand new water treatment plant a few years back. Um, and they were, they were heading to that. And then there was analysis. There was a coalition. There were policymakers who were asking those questions. And they looked at it carefully and they said, nope, this isn't going to work out for us. Um, similarly, it wasn't a water system in, in, uh, in Indianapolis. They wanted to build a new jail and criminal justice center well, I- privately and all that. There's actually lots of examples. Some, there, are, there are cities, communities around the country that have remunicipalized water, their, their water systems. In other words, they, they were private. They took it back. There's actually a fair number of examples of people who are fighting things that never happen and in some cases taking back things after they do happen. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap things up. I recommend everybody take a look at uh, Donald Cohen's book, The Privatization of Everything, which is what we're seeing, How Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How You Can Fight Back, uh, available on Amazon, and uh, I bought it as a Kindle version of it. Um, I recommend That's everybody... available on bookshop.org or your local independent bookstore, because we'd like to support those as well. So we'd like to wrap up today. Uh, thank you for listening, folks. Uh, check out the DOOR website. 
Um, it has, tells you what's, what's happening in the area. We'd like to thank the Yavapai County Democrats for their support. We really appreciate it. And El Portal, um, I call it the world's dog friendliest, dog friendly <laughs> hotel. I'd like to thank all those people. There is a donation button in, um, on our website. Um, if you enjoy the show, if you uh, go to our website, if you press that button, we'd really like to have donations. Um, the show is not free. We pay for our airtime. And we've managed to survive 10 years despite the fact that nobody thought we could. So on that note, I want to thank folks. Check our website, pvid.org. We'll see you next week. We've got a really good show for you. been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.